And good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians will be in chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 984. Page 984. I'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're so grateful to be here together this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to fellowship with one another and to be able to worship you in song, to hear your scriptures read to us, and now to be able to study a portion of it. Lord, we do not take this for granted. We're so grateful for it. Would you help us now, Lord, to settle our minds, to prepare to interact with your word? Help us to understand the contents of today's text. Help us, Lord, to receive its message. And Lord, use it to to give us more confidence in Christ and in the spiritual state that we enjoy before you because of his work. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. 500 years ago, Martin Luther declared that the doctrine of justification was the article upon which the church stands or falls. And that's because this doctrine answers the question, what must I do to be saved? And the Bible's answer to that question and the answer Martin Luther was fighting for is this. That we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, there is nothing that we have to contribute to our own salvation. Salvation is a free gift of God, and it must be this way. And it's a gift that is simply received by us when we trust in Christ alone. That is how we are saved. But you know, this is a hard doctrine to maintain because it runs contrary to fallen human nature. We want to believe that there is some goodness within us that would earn God's favor. That, that there's something about us that would, that would gain the attention of God. We want to believe that, that we can come up with a list that God would be impressed by. And if we were just faithful to keeping our to-do list, that God would reserve a place in heaven for us. That's what we want to believe in our fallen state. But the gospel teaches us That before Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. There is nothing for us to contribute. It was all done by Christ. And we just have to receive it in faith. And so in every age, the church must be careful to safeguard this doctrine. And that leads us into the book of Colossians this morning. Now, in reading through the book of Colossians, it's clear that the church of Colossae was on the verge of losing this precious doctrine. Of course, the church had started out well. The the church had been founded by a man named Epaphras. He was converted under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And the church had been established on a firm foundation. 
The people were zealous in evangelism. They were sound in their teaching. The people in this church were growing by leaps and bounds. But you see, as this church continued to grow, it began attracting some unwanted attention. And eventually, a group of false teachers began entering into the church. And they had a very different answer to the question, how is a person saved? Their answer was, a person is saved by grace through faith plus works. They believed that good works had a contribution to make in our salvation. And this was a huge problem for the church of Colossae. They were beginning to waver in the pure doctrines of the gospel. They're on the verge of embracing this. But if they were to do that, it would mean the loss of the gospel of Christ, the, the loss of salvation. It would mean the eventual undoing of the church itself. And so the Apostle Paul writes this book of Colossians in order to help them get back on track. And a big part of Paul's strategy here is to simply remind the church of Colossae about the all-sufficiency of Christ. This has been the major theme for the first couple of chapters. He's reminded us all that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that by Him all things were made, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers or authorities. All things are from Christ and to Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead, so that in all things he might have the preeminence. Paul has been stressing the all-sufficiency of Christ, so that we will not be tempted to, to look somewhere else for our salvation. Paul has also reminded us that, that we are complete in Christ. That the life, death, and resurrection of Christ accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation. His life secured the perfect righteousness that we need. His death made the full atonement for sin that we needed to make. Through our faith in Him, we have everything. We have salvation. We have the tools we need for spiritual growth. Nothing is lacking in Christ. Paul has been driving these points home to us week after week. But Paul has, been also, has also been offering us some warnings about what would happen if we embraced this false doctrine of justification by works. And so in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceits. He's saying there, look, I know that, that false doctrine can have a, a superficial appearance of wisdom. That's why some people embrace it. But he says, you must not allow that to happen to you. Don't let your Christian minds be taken as plunder by non-Christian ways of thinking. It was a warning to these Christians and to us. Well, today we're in chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, and here we have two more warnings or instructions about the dangers of departing from the pure gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. We're going to look at these together, beginning in verse 16. Look what he, he says here. 
He writes, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So now we're getting a much clearer picture of what these false teachers were saying. It would appear here that that the false teachers were kind of cherry-picking rituals and and restrictions from the Old Testament era. They had made them central to their religious system, and now they were insisting that these things be imported into the gospel. In other words, they were saying, if you don't practice these dietary restrictions and observe these festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, then you are not right with God. And these false teachers were coming into the church of Colossae, And they were noticing the church of Colossae was not observing any of these practices, but they were. And so they began asserting themselves over the church of Colossae and judging them, telling them that they were condemned because they were not keeping the same list of rules that those false teachers were. So Paul sees this situation And he says to the church of Colossae, as he would say to all of us today, don't you dare let anybody with a false gospel, a gospel of salvation by works, don't you dare let them impose themselves upon your church, judge and condemn you, make you feel like you're spiritually lacking because you're not keeping their man-made list of do's and don'ts. Don't let that happen. You've got to protect the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ with no works added to our justification. Well, then, what were these Old Testament rules and and regulations? Well, Paul Paul explains that to us in verse 17. He says, listen, guys, all, all of these things, these were shadows of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So, yes, there was a time in redemptive history when the people of God had new moons and festivals and Sabbaths to observe. There were times when they had these dietary restrictions and things. But, you know, those were never about salvation. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in Christ alone. They were never about salvation. What they were, though, is they were observances in anticipation of the coming of Christ. You see, before Christ came, people still had their faith in him for salvation, but they were looking ahead to his arrival, unlike us who look backwards to his coming. They were looking ahead to his arrival and to help to keep their eyes focused on that coming of Christ And and to build that excitement for his arrival, God built into the Old Testament worship system these festivals and, and these feast days and these Sabbaths. Every one of them provided a a little picture of an aspect of Christ's person or ministry. They were foreshadowings of the coming of Christ. So Paul explains, listen, there there were more rules and regulations and all of that in the Old Testament era, but it was never about salvation. It was just foreshadowings of Christ. So now in the New Testament era, they are especially worthless. 
Christ has come. He's the substance. We now have what they were pointing to. We don't need those things anymore. Not for salvation, not for spiritual growth even. Not for, not for, uh, not as a test for who is spiritually mature and who is not. Those things have passed away. Jesus himself taught this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. The apostles of Jesus picked up on this theme as well. So in Galatians chapter 2, it says, quote, The law of Moses was our guardian until Christ came. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under that guardian. And in Ephesians chapter 2, quote, Christ himself is our peace, who has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And in Hebrews chapter 8, the Old Testament has become obsolete. So you see, there was a time when God's people did these things, but not as salvation, just as ways to build excitement for Christ's arrival. And now the substance is here. Christ has come. Those things have been set aside, never for salvation, now not needed at all. We have the substance. Now, friends, does this mean that it's inherently wrong for Christians to practice dietary restrictions? Is it sinful to, uh, to have a, a strict diet? Is it a sin for Christians today to observe various holidays or festivals or things like this? Well, of, of course not. There's nothing inherently wrong with doing that, so long as you understand that it's just a matter of personal choice or maybe of, of personal conscience, but it has nothing to do with earning a place in heaven with God, and it's not a mark of spiritual maturity necessarily either. We learn this in Romans chapter 14. We read through much of that chapter earlier in the service. Listen again to some of the things Paul wrote there. He said, Do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And then down in verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains to honor the Lord and gives thanks to God. So you see, within this New Testament era, there will still be a tremendous amount of, of diversity among the people of God. If we can bring it up to our day, there will be some Christians who eat meat, other Christians who choose to be vegan. There will be some Christians who enjoy a glass of wine with their dinner, other Christians who are teetotalers. There are some Christians who will celebrate Halloween, other Christians who won't because they, they see its pagan roots. There will be some Christians who choose to be politically active. There will be other Christians who want nothing to do with politics. There will be some Christians who come from a Jewish heritage, and they're going to want to continue practicing some of the elements of their heritage. There will be Gentile Christians like all of us who probably won't practice any Jewish cultural things, but we probably have our own cultures that we continue to celebrate and find practices to observe. And, you know, all of this is okay. 
It's okay for some Christians to, to have a strict diet and others not to. For some Christians to observe these holidays and other Christians not to. For, for Christians to have differences on all of these matters. It's okay. The only problem is when someone begins insisting that keeping their personal list is a condition of salvation or of spiritual growth. The problem is if you say, here is my list of of personal lifestyle decisions. If you don't keep this list, you are no Christian. Or you're at least a very immature Christian. That is what is not permitted. Imagine what would be lost if we started to adopt that kind of a perspective. What would be lost eventually is the pure doctrine of the gospel of Christ. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What would be lost is the all-sufficiency of Christ and his work for securing our salvation. We would be returning back to that old system of works, trying to find a way to, to... merit God's favor so that we might have a place with him. This is what Paul is warning against here. Now, I'm sure the church of Colossae was well taught. After all, they had Epaphras for their pastor. He was converted under Paul. I'm sure they had not been tempted by any of this at the start. So why was this church caving on such a fundamental article of the Christian faith now? Well, it seems they were caving Because now they were intimidated. They were intimidated. You see, these false teachers had made their way into the church, and these guys had an aura of authority about them. They were so self-confident in their belief system. It was completely at odds with the gospel of Christ, but that didn't matter. They were so self-confident in themselves. So much so, they were at the point of arrogance. And they had positioned themselves as the moral superiors of the Christians in Colossae. Look, we are doing these things. You are not. Therefore, we are more righteous than you. Therefore, you need to look up to us. Take your guidance from us. That was the posture these false teachers were taking toward the church in Colossae. And this caused the Christians in Colossae to to begin doubting themselves. They started to think, maybe we are, like intellectually and morally and maybe even spiritually lacking. Maybe there is something wrong with us. Look how confident these guys are. And this is what was causing them to prepare to adopt false teaching. That's incredible, isn't it? that a a true church of Christ established just a, a short time ago could so quickly fall into gospel denying doctrines because they're intimidated by the the very brilliant and and self-confident uh, practitioners of a false gospel they were ready to make concessions to them because of it Now, as I said earlier, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ is a really hard doctrine to keep because it does run so against fallen human nature. People really want to believe that they can come up with that list that will gain God's attention. 
despite the fact that God says even the most outwardly righteous acts of someone not in relation with him is like filthy rags. There's nothing that a sinner can do to gain God's approval. That's why God sent Christ. That's the whole point. He had to do the work for us in his grace. It runs contrary to human nature. And therefore, it's difficult for people to receive. Sometimes people will even become hostile to the idea that there's nothing for them to do except receive in repentance and faith what God has done for them. And in their hostility, they will put pressure on those who have embraced the pure doctrines of the gospel, prompt them to move in their direction. It's also hard to hang on to this doctrine because many of the people who oppose it are really intimidating. Is it not true in our, in our own world today that the most vocal opponents of biblical Christianity are also society's most brilliant spokespersons? They are the ones who have terminal degrees, who have prestigious posts at major universities. They have massive followings. That makes them intimidating. And so when you take that combination of this this being difficult for human nature to accept, and then you add to it that the the greatest opponents of pure doctrines of, of the gospel are really impressive people, those things can come together and make it difficult for a church to remain solid in Scripture long term. And so this requires local churches to be vigilant. We must know what the Scriptures teach. And we must become confident in the content of Scripture. This is something that's only achieved after a lot of time reading the Scriptures and applying them to your life and seeing that they are truly the the wisdom of God. It's learning how the faith is systematized. It comes after learning to, to hone your powers of discernment so that you can see what is true from what is false. We must always be vigilant, and we must always be on the lookout for teaching that would undermine the pure doctrines of the gospel, not welcoming them into our church. Part of this, by the way, is also recognizing that false teaching can come from either the right or the left, not just one side. So, yes, to our left, we have those who would deny the existence of God. The Humanist Manifesto famously saying, No God can save us. We must save ourselves. Well, Christians, if they're not careful, can adopt that idea too. We must save ourselves. We must beware of this false doctrine. But then there's the danger on the right as well of cults who would wish to to be recognized as Christian who have added a series of, of steps or of good works that must be achieved in order for you to be right with God. There are dangers on the left and the right. That's why we must know what the scriptures teach and then have our eyes open like a watchman on a wall, looking constantly in all directions for where the threats might be. And then guarding the sanctity of the church by guarding its doctrines. And friends, we must learn 
how not to become intimidated by false teachers. Yes, they can be very impressive people. But what are they compared to Christ? And that is what we have to look at. Is, is their appearance of wisdom superior to the wisdom of Christ, the one in whom the treasures of all wisdom and knowledge reside? Perhaps they, they look like decent people, but what are they compared to the perfect righteousness of Christ? They might be incredibly brilliant people, but what is their brilliance compared to the one who spun the galaxies into the heavens? Compare them with Christ and then say, I will choose to stand with Christ. I know who he is. He proved who he is the day he rose from the dead. I know who he is and I know what he's taught. He's made it very clear in his words. And so I will follow that. I will choose not to follow the intimidating voices that are outside of the church that are that are. Contrary to the gospel of Christ. You know, something else we could learn to do, we could also learn to show more grace to each other. Equally mature Christians will come to to differences of opinions on a variety of things. And so long as those things are not central to the gospel or to our ability to function together as a local church, we ought to extend grace to each other. Christians are going to have differences of opinion about things like food and drink and clothing and politics and holidays and a whole host of other issues. These are ancillary to the gospel. People even in the same local church can work hand in hand with these kinds of differences. We must not elevate those to the level of gospel truth as if having different personal standards means that that one side or the other has nullified the gospel of Christ. No, we've got to show grace toward each other on such matters. Because what is at stake here is salvation itself. Whether we will get the gospel right for ourselves, for the people we minister to, And for the generation who will inherit our church after us. That's what's at stake. Don't take my word for it. Look at the Apostle Paul in verses 18 and 19. We'll go through these much more quickly. First, Paul said, let no one pass judgment on you in regard to these things. But now he writes, let no one disqualify you. He's taken it a step further now. But this is how the progression works. So these intimidating people bring their false teachings in your own timidity. You begin to adopt their false teachings and then off you go. You know, it won't end at just one false teaching. That will be the first in a listing that goes on and on and on until you have separated yourself from Christ and his church altogether. One error always leads to another until you or your church no longer even qualify as Christian anymore. Just look at the cascade of errors that would hit the the church of Colossae. It wasn't just about food and drink, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. Look at the other things that were going to come afterwards. Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. So after all those other rules had been followed, now they're going to have a new list for you to keep. Asceticism, what is that? Well, asceticism is when you deny your body its most basic needs. 
because you think that doing so will somehow earn your favor with God. Maybe by, by hurting your own body, God will not want to judge you anymore. That's kind of the idea behind asceticism. Look what comes after that on the list. And worship of angels. How did we get there from where we started? But this is what happens. The cascade of errors. It builds and builds until you are outside of Christ. I don't know why these false teachers insisted on the worship of angels. Maybe they saw the angels as, as like gods to be honored. Maybe they, they took those passages of the Bible that say angels are God's ministering spirits. They said, hey, if they're ministering spirits, how about I worship them and they'll minister to me? I don't know why they came up with this. But the end result would be that worship of Christ would be transferred to worship of his own creation. Look at the next thing on the list. Going on in detail about visions. Now, this was the source of these false teachers' self-confidence. If you ask them, where do you get all these ideas about observing all these dietary restrictions and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths and feast days and worshiping angels and all the rest, they would say, well, I got it directly from God. I, I am in direct communion with Him. I'm receiving visions. This is why they were so self-confident in their teachings. But friends, beware of any religious teacher who claims to have received his information from a private revelation from God. Every cult ever born began with that claim. You know what this claim would have led to? The rejection of Scripture had the church in Colossae embraced it. We don't need God's revealed word. We have this guy who's in direct communion with God. We'll just listen to him even though his revelations are directly contradictory to the gospel of Christ. Look next, it says, and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. That's talking about one or more of these false teachers. So the church in Colossae was about to give up their wonderful, humble, godly leaders like Epaphras. They're going to trade him in for an arrogant egotist. Is that a trade you want to make? And then the climax of it all, verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom the whole body, that's the church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. See, friends, Christ is the life of his people. It's where his people derive their spiritual nourishment. It's where his church finds its unity. It's in him. Growth and health only take place as the church is connected to Christ. To be disconnected from Christ or cut off from the head is to be cut off from the only true source of spiritual life and health and growth in the universe. And friend, don't think that you can move away from Christ and that everything will be okay with your soul or with your church. Paul says this is the end result of it all. If you allow people to, to condemn you because you have embraced the pure gospel of Christ and you allow your, your fear of them to cause you to move over here into a, a, a gospel, false gospel of salvation by grace through faith and works, if you go down that road, and then you follow them to the, to the end of where they want to take you. 
with all of these cascading heresies. He says, here's the end result. You will be cut off from Christ. Cut off from the true church of Christ. You will have failed to persevere in your faith. And you won't reach the finish line. That's what was at stake for this church. Friends, this is what is at stake for the church in every generation. There are always going to be voices that that attempt to move the church in a new direction. To take it off of the the pure, saving doctrines of Scripture and to move it towards some method of self-salvation or justifying yourself by works. It will try to move you away from the worship of Christ toward worship of His creation, away from reliance upon Scripture to inform your mind and onto some authoritative individual who speaks contrary to Christ. Every generation faces these things. And the answer is always the same. We remember the supremacy of Christ. That's first. We refuse to let our minds be taken captive by these empty deceits. And then we refuse to allow ourselves to be subjected to their judgments. Meaning, we do not submit ourselves or our churches to them. No way. And we don't let them disqualify us by following their words and example. Or to state it more positively, as we've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we will walk in Him. Friends, let's close this time together now. Lord, we know the contents of the true gospel of Christ. Your word makes it crystal clear. We know that it comes to us as a gift by your grace alone. We know that our only contribution is to receive the gift in repentance and faith. And we know that the object of our faith is to be your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, because He's the one who came and lived and died and rose again for us. Lord, we know that there is nothing within us that could earn Your pleasure. That's only possible after we are justified, as Your grace begins to work in us, causing us to will and to do what pleases You. Lord, we also know that in every generation, from the very first right up to the present time, there have been opponents of the gospel, and that they would love nothing more than to cause your church to submit itself to them, to be carried away by their philosophies and empty deceits. But Lord, the stakes are so high that we don't want that to happen to us. We know it would mean the loss of the message of salvation now and for every generation after us that would inherit the church. So, Lord, help us to be vigilant over our own lives and over our church. Help us to be looking to the right and to the left, looking for any threats to the the pure doctrines that you have handed down to us. And Lord, as we engage with others, help us to do so winsomely and and joyfully, but also with the self-confidence that comes from a people who knows you, who knows 
that they have embraced what is true and good and beautiful. Lord, if there is someone here who's not come to your son yet in saving faith, would you move on their hearts today? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you welcome them into your body, the church? Lord, might they take their place as as a, a worshiper of your son and someone who is eager to build your church your way. Lord, would you also give them the courage to talk to someone after they've done this, whether it's a a Christian friend seated next to them or whether it's me, so that we can help them with the next steps in their great journey. Lord, our church is ultimately in your hands. So are our individual lives. Would you watch over us and protect us? Would you use us for your glory? We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.